Hello and welcome to another episode of Nonprofit Vision. This is your host, Greg Nielsen. I'm the president and CEO of Nielsen Training and Consulting, where we work with nonprofits across the country to translate vision into reality. I want to welcome everybody back to the podcast during this holiday season. I know there's a lot of demands on your time, but I, I really enjoy recording these episodes with and for you as we share topics that are critical to nonprofit leadership. Just a reminder before we get started, um, if you're enjoying the podcast, please remember to share it with your friends, with your colleagues in the profession. It helps us grow this nonprofit community of listeners. And if you're really enjoying the podcast, leave us a rating and a review on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast platform. Today's episode is going to be dedicated to the topic of building networks between nonprofits, government and corporations to address social challenges and social issues. To help us in this conversation, I am thrilled to, to welcome Michelle Shoemate to the podcast. Michelle is a professor at Northwestern University. She is also the founding director of the Network for Nonprofit and Social Impact. Michelle, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me. Thrilled to be here. It's a pleasure to have you join us. Maybe if you could just um, tell us a little bit briefly about your background and how you became involved in, in your work at, as, the, as the founding director and also your work in building networks uh, across different um, subsectors. Yeah, that's a great question. So when I was back in graduate school, um, working on my PhD, I was actually in the corporate knowledge management side of research. Um, so I was working in a major Fortune 100 company. We were trying to figure out how to develop knowledge management systems um, because they kept solving their most complex engineering problems over and over and over again because they didn't realize they'd solved them before. But in my, my free time, um, when I wasn't doing that, I was in Hollywood, California, and I was working with a number of nonprofit organizations there as a volunteer. That's really just part of who I am. If you met my parents, you would understand I am a poor reflection of like the social impact change leaders they are in their community. Um, and I just felt like I had two weird hats at the same time. I was making this corporation more successful, but I wasn't feeling like I was bringing my full self to the work because of what I wanted to do. Um, so that led me to start thinking about, well, looking at all the nonprofits I was working with, they had the same problem as my big Fortune 100 company did, but they weren't solving their same engineering problems or most complex problems in different departments. They were solving it in different organizations. So one nonprofit would figure out the solution to a particularly challenging problem, but the one two blocks down the street would face the same exact problem and they would not know that, oh, I could just call so-and-so and they would tell me the answer. So I got passionate about the idea of how do we build networks among organizations to share information, to share resources and to make a bigger social impact. And I've been doing that um, ever since. So I graduated with my PhD back in 2003, and I um, came to Northwestern in 2012. And that's when we began the, the research lab here that truly tries to both find the best practices for building networks and then translate them out into the nonprofit and social impact community. Michelle, those who listen to the podcast know that we talk a lot about collaboration. We talk a lot about, um, on this podcast, organizations working together. Why networks, though? I'm, I'm curious as to when you think about the challenges that we face in society, 
what is it about the, what are the benefits of a network that allow nonprofits, corporations, and governments to come together? Why is that, and how can that be beneficial? Hmm, great question. Um, when I talk about a network, I'm really talking about an arrangement or a collaboration between three or more organizations who maintain their autonomy. They remain separate organizations, so this isn't a merger. Um, but are still working together in some way. And so networks are, are, is a pretty broad term for me. But when I think about bringing together businesses, government, and nonprofits together, I really think that that's what we need in the moment. Um, when we look at some of the biggest challenges we face, like closing the achievement gap for opportunity youth, or we are thinking about um, issues related to climate change and how do we make sure that we reduce carbon emissions when we're in this critical moment, these are not solutions that any one sector has all of the resources and all of the levers necessary in order to um, really perform the actions we need to perform. And so I think about how do you design these networks so that you can achieve these kinds of social impacts that are bigger than any single organization can do alone. In my experience, nonprofits have a lot of experience working uh, collaboratively with each other. I think that one of the um, one of the greatest myths uh, that's out there is that there's a lack of collaboration among nonprofit organizations. I haven't seen that level of collaboration as much uh, in the for-profit, in the corporate space, or in the government space. So I'm curious, what role can nonprofits play in originating some of these networks in being the, the instigator or the creator, uh, the incorporator of some of these networks? Yeah, I love the word instigator. Um, so in our forthcoming book, um, we talk about network instigators a lot. And um, I try to give tools for network instigators. So I love the word. I think you're right. There's nonprofits have known for a long time that they don't make an isolated impact. There was a, a kind of uh, famous SSIR, Stanford Social Innovation Review article that put that out there um, a while back. And that, that's, that's not been my experience either. I think what makes networks today different than they have been in the past and which um, is drawing people to make them more collaborative is that we've got different levers or theories of change that networks can use when we start to build them up. Um, traditionally, nonprofits have gotten together around project theory of change when it comes to collaboration, which you know they get together and they form the collaboration, they create this great project or program, um, perhaps they've done so in order to apply for a grant and they try to continue to get funding for that program. And that's the way you carry forward. But networks today aren't just doing projects. Networks today that are really effective are starting to do things like develop learning collaboratives. So I'll give you an example here in Chicago where I am. Um, there's a collaborative of several organizations in the adult education and early childhood learning space. All of these organizations work on no common project, right? But they were put into a collaborative in part by a foundation who pushed them to do it for the purposes of learning. So they agreed on their measures of what means quality early childhood education, what means quality adult education. They collect data from all of the participants in their organizations. They have no shared participants. And then they figure out, oh, nonprofit B, you seem to have a really successful mentorship program that's getting better results than any of the rest of us. Let's learn from you. And so the, per the theory of change there is 
Let's all learn together about the best practices. Let's collect data together so that we're doing program evaluation, but we can benchmark against each other because often when you're a nonprofit leader and you're doing program evaluation, you look at your results and you can say, well, is it better than last year? But you have no idea if it's better than the nonprofit down the street who's doing a similar mentorship program than you. So that's one way that you, you can mark it different. I'll give you one more example, and, and, and that's really around systems alignment. And this is where I think that government in particular can play a, a really big role. So systems alignment theories of change say, how do we make sure that our different programs and services work together in order to make a bigger social impact than they would alone? We're not doing joint, joint programs here still. We're just making sure that we are referring and coordinating. And so in the education space and recently in the healthcare and human services space, we're seeing greater systems alignment. The Affordable Care Act, for example, mandated that hospitals make referrals out for social determinants of health. We've got all these new levers coming from Medicare that suggest that we should be building these great health and human service nonprofit networks to address social determinants of health. If they're not doing this, doesn't mean the hospitals and nonprofits are collaborating, creating new projects. It just means that when a hospital identifies somebody as having a social need, they can send them to the right nonprofit who can then provide the services they need and everybody can get better because there are these connections between them. So those are a couple ways that you start to think about bigger collaborations. You can start to see the social impact that they might make that's different than just a project-based social impact. Michelle, one of the things you said a few minutes ago that I loved is one of the core attributes of successful networks is that each organization maintains its autonomy, right? I think another way of saying that is that um, they are respected for the contributions that they bring to the network. I'm curious, as an organization may be putting together a network like this, maybe reaching out to a government partner, corporate partner, how do you recommend they start that conversation? How do you recommend they structure that network so that they can preserve their autonomy, so that they can be respected for the, the contributions that they bring? It's a great question. So I sit down with a lot of um, what I think about as network instigators or network entrepreneurs who are having that moment. And when I sit down with them, the first thing I ask is, what do you want your role to be in the eventual network? And that seems like a, a weird question to start with, but it has everything to do with where you, where you approach it. If your goal is, I want to be the leader of this network, I want to convene all of the meetings, I want to be the one who really helps to drive this thing forward, and I'm going to bring the resources to bear great, that's one kind of convening, that's one kind of approach. Then you can start to bring together folks and say, we have these resources, I have this problem, Here, here's how it all comes together. If you are the nonprofit who thinks this is a good idea, but does not want to run the network, don't do that, right? Like the, you, <laughs> if you start with that idea that you're going to set the problem, you're going to decide who the participants are, you're going to start making the shuttle diplomacy kind of pitches, you're in charge. Other nonprofits just, they, they have a dream for this, but they don't have the resources to support it. And they recognize they're barely keeping their programs going, but they can see synergies. Then your approach is really as an opinion leader, which is to go to the, net, to the nonprofits or to the government agencies who you think could support it, could be the leader, could take this forward and convince them to start it. And so that's the, the first decision you have to make is, do you want to run the thing or are you really trying to encourage somebody else to step up into leadership and to, to, to mark the convening? Um, and I've seen both approaches work really well. 
Um, if you're approaching a government agency, they'd be happy to partner with you often on a particular problem if you're taking all the leadership of it. It's a different thing to ask them, no, actually, we want you, public health department, to step up, or hey, we would like you, superintendent of schools, to take this on in your school district. That's a different kind of ask. I think, um, and now I'm going to get tactical uh, with, with my question here is if I'm a nonprofit leader and I'm working on an issue, let's say climate crisis, um, and I see the benefit, as you've described it, of building a network of corporate and government partners and other nonprofits like myself. Where do I start? So how do I go about in my community identifying who might valued members of this network be? How do I make these connections? Who and how do I reach out to? How do you recommend an organization start to think through putting a network like this together? Mm -hmm. So there are a couple of different things to think about. One is thinking about where, what's the root cause of this problem? So really defining the problem and, and mapping it out really effectively is important um, because unless you do, you can end up developing a network and then realizing you don't have the right players at the table. So in the, the climate space, let me give you an example. So REAMP is a uh, climate network. It's across 10 states in the Midwest. And when they first got together um, about 10 years ago, the Garfield Foundation brought them together and said, hey, you 10 very technical environmental conservation organizations, why don't you come together and form a network and we'll see if we can slow down climate emissions. Great, fantastic. Five years down the road, they realized, oh, this is also an equity concern. We have to deal with environmental justice. And they looked around the room and realized there's nobody in the room who can take us there. And so then they had to go back and think about, well, maybe if it's not a technical problem, when we think about climate, change. Maybe if it's an justice problem too, who else needs to be at this network that's not there? They had to go back and start recruiting again and really almost resetting the organization. So starting out in the front and figuring out, is this really a narrow technical problem or is going down to a root cause analysis? Is this a broader problem can help you decide who needs to actually be at this table? And chances are when you get to a root cause analysis, the table's bigger than you think it is. Right. So that's my first piece of advice. My second is to decide, are you in a position to um, have a carrot or a stick when it comes to recruiting network members? So foundations often have lovely carrots in terms of we have funding for this network. If you participate, you will get to be a part of this. And they can bring a lot of folks together um, and mandate if you're going to get funding, you're going to be a part of this network, right? They have the carrots and sticks. Not every nonprofit has that available to them. And so if you don't have it available to you, you're going to have to do a lot of bottom-up recruiting, which means you want to be strategic and thinking about who are the people who, if you recruit, are going to be those signals of legitimacy for this network that's going to bring everybody else on board. And so that's the second tactical piece that I talk about. And I, you know, I love what you just said because it, it reminds me of the way as nonprofit leaders, we put together our staff team where we put together and recruit our board. A lot of it is looking at who's around the table, what perspectives, talents, skills, expertise do they bring? Who's not at the table? but has to be or must be. It's the same kind of analysis that we do uh, as nonprofit leaders when we think about our board and we think about our, our staff. And that, that seems like it carries forward to building networks as well. 
That's a great analogy. And I think that the, the piece around that that's really important is that when you look at a board, you know that if you have a gap in that board, you're going to miss things, right? You're going to miss certain types of analyses or certain lenses. The same thing is true in a network table, right? If you are missing a particular um, sector or you're missing somebody who takes a particular vantage point, you're missing total dimensions of the problem and their expertise too. So it's a really great analogy. It's a great point. One of my favorite phrases, those who listen to the podcast know this well. Uh, one of my favorite phrases is the people in the room determine the questions that are asked. And if mm -hmm. you're missing key partners in the room, whether it's a network meeting or whether it's a board meeting, you're missing critical pieces of the analysis. That's fantastic. Yeah, I can think about that in terms of a, a, an education uh, network that we, we studied for a while. And it was actually started by business leaders who were concerned about economic development. And so they were thinking economic development. We don't we, we just want to make sure it's driven by business principles. Um, and they didn't ask a lot of education leaders to be in the room. And then they were surprised that there were different measures for some of these education outcomes that they didn't know was coming. They didn't know the questions to ask because they didn't have some of those early childhood leaders um, in the room. They were so convinced that they had the right frame. We, we talked earlier about the importance of a common understanding of what is the goal of the network, common performance measures of what are we trying to, what type of change are we trying to affect? I'm curious if you could address the importance of trust and vulnerability um, mm. in some of these networks. You know, it, it strikes me that you're, you're bringing together sometimes non-traditional partners of nonprofits and corporations. Um, sometimes there are foundations, philanthropic foundations that are involved. By the very nature of the network, there is some vulnerability of what do we do well what do we not do well? How do you recommend organizations approach those issues of trust and approach those issues of vulnerability at the outset so that they can have a common understanding moving forward? Yeah, that's really good. Um, I often say that networks move at the speed of trust. And so I think this is exactly the right question. Um, in networks, one of the things that makes it really challenging to develop trust and vulnerability is that you have often organizations of very different sizes. So you might have a very grassroots community-based nonprofit who serves a particular marginalized or oppressed community at the same table as you have a city leader who's a city manager at the same time as you have this big philanthropic foundation all sitting at the same table. And figuring out how to build trust when you have those power differences is, is really challenging. What I often tell networks is that if it's the first time that you've partnered, this is going to take some time. All of the research that we have on social impact says you should buckle down for three to five years before you are going to see the big outcomes of network um, performance in a way that you wouldn't see necessarily in the first couple of years. And those first couple of years are a chance to begin to turn the flywheel of success and find ways to work together. So in the first couple of years, first thing to figure out is how are we going to make decisions? That's an interesting question for a network. Do we all vote? Does the big hospital system get the same number of votes as the little community nonprofit? That's an important question. And so often what I recommend is that organizations not vote because um, they can vote with their feet if they don't like what you say. And then you've lost that perspective that we just talked about. Instead, they learn a little bit about how to do consensus-based decision-making and really listen to one another and to find ways that they can get to places where everybody wins, not everybody just compromises. 
And then you have to find small targets of opportunity at the beginning. You don't start with the big project that's going to take 10, 15 years to see come to fruition. You start with a small project and then you work your way through. Um, in the book, we talk about the Neurofibromatosis Collective, um, which is a collective of organizations around this particular type of rare childhood cancer. And when they got together, it was really challenging because they had very different size foundations in the room. And one organization was actually founded because it broke away from another one of the organizations in the room. So there was all that history around it. And I, I was lucky enough to work with them and talk with them in the early stages. And they were setting out originally big goals. We're going to do a policy advocacy goal. We're going to do a national registry. We're going to do that. I said, smaller, <laughs> smaller. Uh, and what they ended up starting out with is realizing, oh, we don't actually have a doctor's directory of specialists who know how to deal with this form of cancer. And all of us know have people who are first diagnosed and then the process of finding someone who knows what to do with this type of cancer is just so challenging for patients. Could we just create a directory? We'll combine all of our knowledge about who these providers are across the country. We'll just create a one-stop shop directory. And that became their first win. And then they were able to begin to turn the flywheel and create other leadership programs and other advocacy programs because they got the practice with something small. And I think that's really key to building trust when you've got so many different kinds of organizations operating at different sizes. And when you might have some tough history of either competition or interpersonal history between some of the leaders of these organizations. Good point. Well, Michelle, a lot of what we've talked about so far has been tips and strategies that you should do. And I know that there's often value in also knowing what pitfalls to avoid. So if you could maybe take a few minutes and address um, for those listening, what are some things that you shouldn't do if you are either participating or putting a network together to address social challenges? So one of the things that I, I, I kind of get on my soapbox about with network leaders sometimes is um, using hosting as a strategy. So often leaders, when they think I want to form a network, start to think about let's have some meetings. We'll have workshops and speakers come in and we'll get people together on a quarterly basis. Those types of networks are lovely in terms of professional development often but they aren't the strategy that allows a network to make a social impact. And so um, often when I've had leaders who've been using that strategy for a while come to me and they say, how can we measure our social impact? My answer is you can't because the difference between somebody hearing a great speech and actually moving the needle on social issues is a really long journey. And there's not a really great way to evaluate that or to even begin to see if what you did made a contribution towards the social impact of the network. So my first tip is avoid just hosting groups of people and hoping that these serendipitous relationships are going to create a social impact. Um, they sometimes happen, but it's really rare. Sometimes you win the lottery too when people buy enough tickets. That's a similar type of strategy. I think the second piece that I would say is uh, avoid is avoid centralizing leadership too much in a single individual or a single organization. If at the end of the day, it's the same person who wakes up every single morning and they are the only ones driving this network, you haven't done enough to distribute leadership. And that's really risky. Um, we did a project where we studied 26 education networks across the country. We studied them for three years, right? So there, three years is enough time for turnover to start to happen. And a 
good number of our organizations faced like an, an existential crisis during that point where their funder decided to pull out or somebody retired who was really essential or got to, to, or started a new job or something shifted in the network. The networks who had a distributed leadership kept going and were able to pivot and figure out how to continue their social impact. The networks who had this all in a single organization and a single leader folded. So if you want over the long-term to keep the organization and the network going because you believe in the long-term social impact of what this can bring, figure out how to share leadership. It can't all be set in one organization or with one leader. Michelle, you've given us some tremendous ideas, tremendous tips and strategies, things to do, things to avoid. You've referenced a couple of times your book. Um, I'd I'd love for you to share a little bit about the title of your book um, and its focus. Yeah, so the book is called Networks for Social Impact. Um, it's a, a little bit of my baby because it's the first book that I've written, but it's I've been doing research in this area for 20 years. So I keep telling people it's a 20 years in the making book. Um, and the book really starts to, to unpack what do we know about how do you build and design networks for social impact? And the kind of theme of the book, the main idea there is that it depends on your theory of change It depends on your ability to instigate, depending on where you are in the community and the resources that you can leverage. Um, But once you've figured out that right design, it's about alignment of all of the right choices. So if you're one kind of instigator and you have these kinds of resources and you choose this theory of change, there's a set of practices that work for you that might not work for another kind of instigator in another theory of change, but there still are some best practices. So we talk about them in every chapter of the book as pathways forward and dead ends. So we try to steer people towards the different pathways towards social impact and steer them away from the dead ends that we've found over the years um, can really derail a network. It sounds like a fascinating read. I can't wait to get my hands on a copy myself. For those who may want more information or may want to reach out to you directly or get a hold of you for the to get a copy of your book, um, how can people get in touch with you? Sure. So you can learn more information about the Network for Nonprofit and Social Impact on our website. It's nnsi.northwestern.edu. Um, and I'm on Twitter. I'm Prof Shumate, P-R-O-F-S-H-U-M-A-T-E. You can find me there. Um, and then I have a pretty active LinkedIn page. Um, and so I, I'm having Michelle Shumate as your name makes you somewhat rare in the LinkedIn community. So there's nothing special other than looking for my name to find me there. Um, and if you go there, you can find a, a little bit of a, a, an image on my profile that will give you a discount on the book. So a little more incentive to find me on LinkedIn. Excellent. Michelle, thank you so much for taking the time to join us. Michelle Shumate, professor at Northwestern University and the founding director of the Network for Nonprofit and Social Impact. want to thank everybody for listening to the podcast. Again, so excited by the growth of the podcast um, and the growth of our community of discussion that we've formed through this Um, through this podcast. If you're enjoying it, be sure to share it with your friends and colleagues. Michelle, thank you for taking the time to join us. My pleasure. Thanks so much for having me. And I hope everyone stays safe, stay well, and have a happy and healthy holiday season out there.